Welcome to the Inside Aesthetics Podcast. Our mission is to strip away the myths and hype that often surround the aesthetics industry. Inside Aesthetics aims to get to the bottom of the important topics that concern medical and allied health professionals, as well as the consumers themselves. We'll be showcasing the thoughts and experiences of experts in their respective fields. Each podcast will focus on a specialty, including surgery, non-surgical procedures, nutrition, well-being, and business knowledge from the personalities that have helped shape our industry. This podcast and its related publications provide news and general educational information about cosmetic procedures and well-being. It does not promote or endorse any cosmetic procedure, brand, or product. You should seek professional medical assessment before considering any treatment. Our guest today is Rayleigh Alam. Rayleigh is a registered nurse and is the practice manager for Dr. Sharam Shahidi, who is one of Australia's leading and most experienced rhinoplasty specialists. Throughout her seven-year tenure with Dr. Shahidi, Rayleigh has assisted thousands of rhinoplasty patients with their surgical experience, ranging from pre-op, surgical nursing, and post-op aftercare. Being so involved with the patient journey has changed how she manages her practice to enhance a positive patient experience and streamline the day-to-day functions within a busy cosmetic practice. Good morning, Riley. How are you? Good morning. I'm well, thank you. How are you? Very good. Great to see you. Thanks for coming in. Appreciate your taking the time to come out and have a chat with us. I know you're very busy running Dr. Shahidi's practice, so we... Jake and I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> Good morning, Thank you for having me. <laughs> so, Rayleigh, tell us all about your background, first of all, b- before we get on to practice management. So, where did you start? I sort of fell into it. So, I knew, I, I worked for, as you said, Dr. Shahidi, and I knew him socially when I was at uni. So, after I finished school, I went to uni studying health science, which was a bit of a broad degree, but back then I had ideas of doing dentistry. Hold on, so you I, guys went to uni. I was going to say, oh, so you look, you what? look right, like, <laughs> I want to know what your anti-aging secret is. What am I doing wrong? <laughs> so yeah, so, so he was in practice many years experience at, the, at that time. And I'd finished school, went to uni, had ideas of doing dentistry. So that's why I did health science, which was something a bit more broad. Um, as I got a little bit older and a year or so into uni, I thought, what was I thinking? Dentistry is so not what I want to do. So I didn't really have a clear path as to where I wanted to go with it. Why, why did you want to do dentistry originally? What, what I just love teeth and I love smiling well, and people, teeth, so <laughs> and people smiling and that kind of thing. So I just kind of was naturally drawn to that. Um, I also generally had an interest in health, kind of that kind of sphere. Mm-hmm. And so I was doing health science again, a little bit lost as to exactly what I wanted to do when I finished, the more I studied. I had a major in business management. I also did quite a lot of subjects in psychology. So just found people in general quite interesting. And then also like just health and the health system and stuff like that. Um, So it was purely by chance. I finished uni, went overseas for a while on like a holiday, came back. And then I had a call from Dr. Shahidi and sort of by chance, one of his, his practice manager had left and due to health reasons and other things. And he was sort of desperate for someone to come on board. So he said, can you just come and answer my phones for a few days? Like I just need someone to pick up the phone. And I was like, perfect. I had nothing better to do. Just finished uni. And I was, had ideas of going back and that kind of stuff, but it was still uni holidays. And I thought, oh, perfect for me. I didn't have a job. Like I'll come in and answer the phone. Anyway, one thing led to another. We obviously got on really well, enjoyed working together. And seven years later, I'm still there. So um, I was really lucky when I went there that 
he was obviously short-staffed, kind of needed me, but also he taught me a lot of things in the beginning. He then hired a practice management consultant who to come on board because he was obviously short-staffed and he then had two staff members leave both. It was just bad, sheer bad timing while they yeah. both left. So she sort of helped him with like planning the future of his practice. And then she sort of said to him, which I'm not saying he didn't realise this either, but he sort of said, like, she said, why don't you make a career for Rayleigh? Like she's sort of, she enjoys working here. Yeah. She fits in. Why don't we sort of come up with a plan? So then we developed like a five-year plan. And I was sort of a bit hesitant at first because I thought, oh, I don't know if this is what I want to do. I didn't know much about the industry. She was very professional and had, like she was, you know, in her 60s. So she'd had a whole life experience doing that in that industry, in more practice management in general, not just in the cosmetic field. And she then came up with a five-year plan of different things that I could do to sort of upskill myself. Like I then, she suggested that I do a diploma of practice management, which I was a little bit not so sure about doing because I did have my degree from Sydney Uni in that as well. But I'm glad I did it because it taught me a lot about running a medical practice more specifically. So risks that we face in the clinic day to day, and more importantly, how we manage those risks for, with the aim of like patient health care, you know, so that that's the first and foremost thing rather than just running a business. So the diploma I did was really useful in that respect. Um, and then we also came up with a in our five-year plan, we came up with the idea that I could then also do nursing, which I wasn't really too hot on the idea of doing that because I was a nurse by, by nature. It's not really... What was the angle to that? So you could help in theatre or...? It, yeah, so it was more... And something, again, that I really love about Dr Shahidi is he looked at my future employability. So he thought if you, for starters... Uh, he didn't want me to get bored with the day-to-day of the clinic. And he sort of thought, if you leave me and go somewhere else, what can you add that's an advantage to other people? Like what are future career options for you? And then so the idea and something I love about nursing and why I would recommend it to many girls and men, people in general, is because there are so many different things that you can do with it. For example, hospital management, clinic management, working in a hospital, um, something like being a rep in different drug companies. If I, exactly. Yeah. So it's really, really broad. And the more I Injectable. Learned, I'm just going to drop that in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the more I learned about it, the more I thought, actually, I can use those nursing skills to my advantage yeah. rather than how I... Well, just, like, everyone, not everyone that does law becomes a lawyer. Exactly. So yeah. it's a transferable skill set that you can use across a multitude of, of disciplines and, and, and jobs. So, yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Yeah. And because my initial understanding or limited understanding of nursing was that it was sort of, you know, on a ward, caring for people. Empty oh, bedpans. Yeah. <laughs> Which is not me by any, <laughs> by any means. So I ended up doing nursing and um, sort of what I really loved about doing nursing later once I'd had a few years to sort of work in a clinic and get to know myself and the industry is I I feel I got a lot more out of my nursing degree rather than, so I did it. So I was working full-time. Then I started studying nursing by distance full-time so I could still work in my job because I obviously loved it. Sure. Um, so the advantage with that is 
I was able to go into the hospital and get certain skills out of it that I really wanted to. Tailoring what you needed from it yeah. whilst doing the training, I guess. Yeah. So because I was a little bit older doing it I ha- and also a few years working in the industry, I had the experience of learning how to communicate with people and talking to people and also feeling confident enough to talk to people, which was not a skill that I learned overnight as well. Cause like I said, I was straight out of uni and started working in the clinic and even picking up the phone, talking to someone was a bit of a daunting thing Mm. at first. But um, yeah, so going into nursing, working in the hospitals, I was able to get a lot out of it. And I believe I performed quite well from a patient perspective and a nursing nursing perspective because I could talk to people. Mm. So I did the, yeah, my degree, and then now I use those nursing skills in our clinic. We, we've actually spoken to, obviously, Penny, who, who you know and, and you listen to the podcast. What does a nursing degree very briefly entail? Like, what are you actually doing day to day or year to year? And how long does it take? So it was three years. I had a few subjects accredited from my undergraduate degree, which did make it a little bit easier while I was working full time. With nursing, they start out in, they do all the hard things first, hard general skills, or what I found hard anyway. Try to like, scare off the weak. Yeah, <laughs> like working in a nursing home, doing bedpans and showering. And yeah. to be honest, if I didn't have my job doing what I was doing, that would have turned me off. Yeah. Uh, so we start off very broad doing that. And then it sort of gets down to the more medical side as you go along. So it starts off with more caring. So um, working in, so first placements were in nursing home, then on the ward looking after quite, sick people like an oncology ward. Do, do you get a choice of whether you get exposed to surgery or or you just get randomly placed, say, on oncology, like you said? I was really lucky because when I went to uni, I managed to meet the right people. Okay. <laughs> so I met some people at uni that kind of explained to me how to work the system, sure. which was a little bit of, I, I managed to meet this girl who was in charge, she, as part-time, she worked for medical students organizing placements. So she sort of said to me, if you express an interest in certain areas and you talk to people at the hospital and they're happy to have you, that makes the coordinator's job a little bit easier. (laughs) But also, you know, if you're going to work in a private practice doing ENT or surgery, of course you need that skill set and that experience. Definitely. Yeah. So I had also, because I'd been working in the industry too, I did know a lot of people in different hospitals. So I spoke to different private hospitals and sort of said, hey, can I come there and do a placement on this ward? And they were sort of all too happy to have me. So I was able to get out of it what I wanted in our clinic, which was working on surgical wards and then working in theatres as well. And I did my ICU placement and general like preference placement at the end, our six-week placement in theatres doing um, scrubbing work with surgeons. Okay. So from my placement, I was able to get out of it specific skills that I wanted, which was more surgical and post-surgery caring for people. Um, that's quite a unique experience, I think, with nursing because I did do it again later. It wasn't I wasn't straight out of school. If I was straight out of school doing it, I wouldn't have known how I wanted to tailor my degree so much. I also probably, for me, I don't think I would have got so much out of it because being older, I was a little bit more receptive to the patients and something that I got in all my placement feedbacks, I don't believe I was necessarily the best nurse in my first placements, like like in the nursing home and that kind of thing, because it wasn't natural to me to do bedpans and stuff, but I was able to talk to people. So the more I got to know the patient, the more I found it made me a better nurse because they felt comfortable to communicate with me where they felt uncomfortable, what their concerns were and their overall experience in Mm -hmm. the facility. 
and then I could look after them better because I knew how to make them happy. And then that's also a really important skill that I use in the practice that I work in now as well, yeah. communicating. So when Dr. Shahidi sat down and wrote this five-year plan with you, mm-hmm. what was the aim in terms of your uh, capacity in the practice once you'd finished that nursing degree? Was it to help with pre-post-surgery? Was it to perhaps look at um, taking on an injectable um component in the business or was it to carry on what you're doing, but just be armed with that extra knowledge and qualification? A little bit of both because to answer that last part of the question, one of my early placements in theatres when I was there, I was dealing with people who came out of, you know, just had an anaesthetic and they were a little bit groggy and work with my background working in the practice. I'd never seen that before. And the first thing I did was go back into our practice and rewrite our whole post-op instructions (laughs) because I realised they were just too complicated for groggy people, you know, just sort of simplified it all. So I was able to put myself in that, on that other end of where the patient is in the hospital. So it did make my overall practice better in the clinic. But also it was to give, so Dr. Shahidi works very hard and he's very fussy about how he does things, which is why I believe he's a very good surgeon. Exactly. And so he was able to train me to do things the way he wanted to. So he was a bit hesitant in the past to have different nurses work in the clinic because they often come from different backgrounds and want to do things their way. So advantage for him was he could teach me the way he wanted me to do it. So I've, um, so we sort of, and so it took the pressure off him, but also knowing each other and him training me, he was able to trust me and offload a lot of the other things to me that he didn't necessarily have to do as a doctor, which in turn has also made our clinic more profitable and being able to run better because we can free up his time to do, yeah, to do more surgery and other things. So that was sort of, so it was sort of a mixed plan (laughs) to benefit me to make things more interesting, but also to benefit the practice and for him too. And um, I enjoy doing it as well because it's more hands-on, it's more getting to know people, it's more hearing about their journey and making them happy in the end. And also, I don't plan on leaving my job anytime soon because <laughs> I really like Dr. it. Dr. Shahidi's listening to this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, the, but at the same time, I'm really grateful to him and that my skills that through it, I have, I could go and say work in a hospital more in a management role or something as well, rather than, I don't know how I'd go at doing that because I yeah, like the yeah. cosmetic surgery industry. Well, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting because I think a lot of nurses now are entering into or wanting to undertake the nursing degree with the view to move into injectables. So it's really interesting mm-hmm. to hear a different perspective yeah. on an alternative pathway. Perhaps in, you want to be in the cosmetic industry and you want to be a nurse, but maybe doing toxins and fillers all day isn't what you want to do. So it's really interesting exactly. to hear this different And sorry, I didn't answer that part of your question. And that's something I found really interesting with Penny's podcast is that she was saying, and I do agree with her, that working in the hospital gives you more of an experience about the whole patient and not just looking at, okay, they want this filler is this right for them but looking at that the bigger picture mm-hmm. and that's something you learn from those general nursing skills and i've also learned from general patient skills working in as a practice manager yeah. so with the nursing degree i can do injectables and that is a bit of a plan within the clinic mm. but i also will sort of see how it goes see in yeah. the future because as we all know it's learning the skill is one thing yeah. but learning how to use it and be really good at it is mm-hmm. something else yes. and I've got to sort of find where my skills lie with that Mm. and go from there. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. I think it's, as you said, important that nurses do have that 
that period of time after finishing, finishing their qualification where they do spend some time acquiring more clinical skills and yeah. experience, as you said, dealing with patients and aseptic technique and all those sorts of things mm. just makes them make them better. And Jake, would you agree? Or Yeah, and also, you know, if if you're, say, a, a, someone who hasn't even done your nursing degree and you've already decided what you're going to do with it, you may decide along the way, actually, I'm not so sure that I want to pigeonhole myself into doing injectables. Yeah. I've seen some scrub nursing and I love that. So I think to have an open mind, develop all the skills... And then, you know, closer to the time, maybe get some experience in, in a clinic or, or in a dental practice or wherever you think you want to end up and actually see if you like it. Yeah. Don't just sort of have this random idea that this is what it's going to be like for the rest of my life. Mm. Be open-minded and, and pick up uh, tips and skills from all sorts of people that you get trained with. Yeah, exactly. Very true. And another thing with that as well is if you're a nurse fresh out of nursing and you go into doing injectables, even if you have the skill set that they don't necessarily have that experience with understanding, communicating with the patient, understanding what they actually want That's from the cute. treatment and also building that rapport for them to come back in the future yeah. and have a treatment with them. I mean, when I was a 16-year-old and I decided I want to go to medical school, for whatever reason, I decided I wanted to do cardiothoracic surgery, which is heart <laughs> surgery. And the only reason I chose that is because I did some experience in a hospital and I saw an open heart uh, surgery and I thought, oh, wow, that's really cool. I'm going to do that. Mm. And yet... I hated that side of surgery for the rest of my career. It was, you know, I, I think you've just got to be, uh, have, have an aspiration, but be open-minded and, and sort of see what suits your skill set. It's all about your personality as well, I think. Yeah, definitely. And also you don't know what you don't know. So like you said, you saw, you liked the cardiothoracic stuff, but you probably didn't even see injectables about it, or anything cool. else for you. Yeah. 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 And the more you see, the more you like. Well, when Jake was doing that, there probably wasn't, injectables weren't invented yet. Yeah. Weren't they? Um, they were <laughs> I mean, probably using myself at the same time here. But yeah. <laughs> They're probably using collagen uh, or whatever they used to use. Um, so I guess to orientate people who, who maybe aren't exposed to the world that we're sort of talking about. What is a practice manager? What does what your day-to-day -day job involve? Okay, yeah. So day-to-day, -day I sort of do the general running of the clinic. So that goes from the administration and HR to dealing with patients when they come in. And a big thing with, uh, the thing that I probably find the hardest with practice management is the HR side. So dealing with people hiring and firing and that kind of thing. So we do, so day to day, I sort of coordinate the appointment book, plan our year out in advance when doctor's taking leave, how we're going to manage that prior to his leave after, how, how that will impact our patients. Sort of, you know, the admin stuff like paying bills and mm -hmm. <laughs> stock control and all, and um, it's the back end of, of how it all works. Yeah. Yeah. How many people are on your staff or are you doing this all yourself? Juggling <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> it's only all possible with our team. So we have three other girls that do administration with us, with me, me and three other girls, which for, so it's a one doctor clinic, essentially. We do have some other doctors and nurses that come in and do injectables, but that's part-time. We're essentially a one doctor. Mm. We've tried different things throughout the clinic, having less staff or more staff. Four can be a little bit too much at times, but the reason we do it that way is because it allows us to have enough time to take our time with everyone that comes in the door. Yeah, yeah. And there's always call. a bit of leeway if someone's sick or someone's too yeah. busy, you can <laughs> yeah. manage that, I guess. And as a practice manager, you tend to learn those things the hard way because <laughs> you think in the beginning, oh, we'll be fine with three people and you are, but then when someone wants to go away or they're sick, you... Yeah, you need that, yeah. Extra, that extra pair of hands. Now, um, someone else that's 
obviously spoken your praises other than Dr. Shahidi is Dr. Shab. She was talking about the fact that she works very closely with you mm-hmm. in assisting Dr. Shahidi with patient assessment, yeah. I guess ensuring that people are suitable for surgery and, and I guess helping her in flagging the, those potential issues and then also in the post-op journey with patients as well. So would you be able to talk to us a little yeah, bit about how that works? And also to hit on what Jake just mentioned about the team that we work with. So that's been, for me, the hardest thing is getting a really good team that we all work together really well with. And we're I'm really lucky that we have a really good team at the moment and we've been working together for quite a few years now. But the reason that's important is because when patients contact our clinic and they come into our clinic, they can often be under the impression that they're just dealing with Dr. Shahidi. Mm. But we see it as that they're dealing with our practice as a whole. So, and often they can be a bit unhappy about that. I will come to your your question in a second. (laughs) I'm getting there. So they uh, can be a bit unhappy with dealing with some of the girls in our clinic or the way we do sort of certain things. But I, the perfect example of that is Dr. Shahid, you know, we're going into Prada. We want to buy a bag. He's that beautiful leather that Prada have, but without the zips and the chains (laughs) that makes that handbag, (laughs) it doesn't necessarily work. So at the moment, we're really lucky that, and for me, the biggest thing of being a practice, good practice manager is thorough training with your team. And so what I mean by that is our, we're almost screening the patients or getting to know them from their very first phone call to the clinic. So they often say things to us in the beginning over the phone that can be very concerning and that they may not open up and say to Dr. Shahidi down the line. So what we're aware of is, and something that I'm quite proud to say, is that all the staff in our team are all very well trained in communication and talking to people. And so we're kind of monitoring, monitoring them for being potentially referred to a psychologist from the first phone call. So we kind of take that into account from the beginning. And then when they come in to see Dr. Shahidi, often people put on a show for him. You know, they're very willing to tell him something that they think he might want to hear or or in some cases are too embarrassed to say things to him. So then they'll open up and say it to me or one of the other girls. And so it's our responsibility then to say, hey, if we operate on this person, is that the best thing for them? So we work really closely with the, um, Dr. Shab, because we often pick up on a lot of things that we then let her know of and say, you know, from a medical perspective or a surgical perspective, they're a really suitable candidate, but we're really worried about these other, you know, compliance things or emotional things that we've experienced as well. Mm-hmm. So f- we work really closely with her as a whole practice. And since we've been doing that, we've been doing that for quite a few years and it's really made a positive impact on our practice from both a surgical perspective, but also with aftercare and care prior to surgery. And I think it's, it's, it's going to become an area as cosmetic medicine surgery becomes more and more prominent in our society and we start to see the effects of things like social media and how that affect, how those two worlds are colliding and causing these potential psychological issues for patients, it's going to become more and more, I think, standard practice that uh, surgeons, practice managers and psychologists will start working a lot more closely together to make sure that they're doing the responsible thing um, and pointing people in the right direction if they aren't suitable for surgery to perhaps um, discuss unresolved issues or get them in, in the right frame of mind where they may be potentially suitable down the track. Yeah, and social media has changed our practice a yeah. lot. And also one thing I want to emphasize is working with a psychologist, when I say that we're 
listening to what our patients say from the first phone call and working through the experience, I can't emphasize enough that the psychologist is there for them. Mm. They don't work for us. She's the works for the patient. So protecting them from themselves, essentially. Yeah, okay. yeah. And also what we find too is that people can often be unhappy about having to see a psychologist and they say, oh, you're just deterring my business. And it's like, well, what we're actually trying to do is get your business, so to speak, but in the safest and best way possible down the line. So back to social media, what we've noticed is that it has a really good impact on our practice in that we're transparent and we get to know our clients and they get to know us. But also the problem is people can have very unrealistic expectations. And Dr. Shahidi did a presentation a few years ago on how the selfie changed his changed his post approach to rhinoplasty. And it really has because people are now analyzing their photos so much more. And also they're using filters and Facetune to edit all their yeah. photos. Song. Yeah. <laughs> so every day people bring in photos and they say, I want this nose. I was like, but that's edited. We can't achieve that. It's not possible. Yeah. I had a, a client recently who, you know, similar thing. She wanted her chin and jawline improved, but it got to the point where the photos that she was putting on, you know, social media, it, it was completely edited so her jawline in in the photos was what she wanted but that was how she was presenting herself to the world yeah it, it wasn't just to show me what she would like that is what she presented to the world and i just found that really sad yeah we see a little bit of that as well and that we we will see patients social media profiles and I'll look at them and I'm like, well, they don't need a nose job. Like, <laughs> who is this? Then they come in and they look nothing like the pictures. Yeah. And because they've edited it so much. And it's sort of, again, that's a concern because we think, well, you know, you're seeing yourself differently as or presenting, like you said, presenting themselves differently now yeah. to how we see them. And then how can we achieve that realistically mm. for, for them? the surgeon or, or the injector, the aspiration to achieve that is understandable, but mm. it's, it's the, being not happy enough to show your real self that is concerning. And that's yeah. a red flag for, yes. <laughs> for the practitioner. Yeah, very much so. And so a few years ago, we had a marketing company that was doing our social media and they were doing a really great job of it. And the problem was it was a little bit disjointed to our practice because they didn't work within our practice. So they couldn't necessarily portray us the way we wanted to be portrayed. And the lady who was doing it is now one of my really good friends because there was daily there were so many concerns that she was dealing with that she would have to ask, how do I answer this? How would you answer this? What would I say? And she got very good at it, but I've since taken over <laughs> the last couple of years because it was just sort of, it's easier to portray the clinic from. And I think a lot of uh, businesses struggle with that. They want to outsource their PR, their social media but then you lose the tone of voice. You're not maybe answering people's questions effectively um, or appropriately. And I mean, how do you feel, David? I mean, you run oh, businesses. Yeah. Look, so as, I think social media is, is the double-edged sword. Yes, very much it's, so. It can do wonderful things or it can be absolutely catastrophic. And I think that, Jake, you're right in terms of you know, answering the questions correctly. It's almost like these conversations are probably best not had over uh, exactly. uh, Instagram private message. These are conversations that need to be had in person yeah. and need to be documented because things can be misconstrued. They can take things out of it. I think my advice would be to try and stay away from as much advice, information as possible when it comes to 
you know, text replies or instant messages. Yeah, I'm really glad you said that because I struggle with that daily and I've got a few funny stories on yeah. that. Well, well, well with, I'll on all the funny stories, yeah. stories on Dr. Shahidi at the end as yeah. well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to tell you I've stopped hitting record and, and secretly not. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good. So with the so first and foremost, with all our photos, we've we're constantly evolving with it. And we have I now have to put a disclaimer on every photo saying this isn't achievable because what we struck were struggling with is everyone was bringing in these notes and saying, I want this, I want this. It's like, ah, oh, just because that was a result for them doesn't mean yeah. we can achieve that for you. Well, it might not suit them. Exactly. Yeah. But they often look at that as what I what I've noticed is people look at that photo and that's what they want to look like yeah. in yeah. terms of that's who they want to be more than it is just the nose that they're looking at. Sure. With your comment about the direct message on Instagram, so I completely agree with that. So every day we get bombarded with text with messages on um, DMs. The I keep it really simple. So pretty much just say, look, this is a guide on cost of surgery the guide on cost for consultation, but then I just end it with, for any further information, please contact us. Mm -hmm. And we also get flooded with people wanting Instagram DM consultations. Well, <laughs> so yeah. this is actually a really interesting point. Please carry on. Yeah. So they kind of, they will send me photos and say, doctor, what's your thoughts? So first I want to emphasize that and you're unique with that, Jake, that you run your social media page, which I think is really great. That's killing me. Yes. Hence the grey hair. That's why I'm so, trying to get all the tips from you. Yeah. yeah. So the problem is people think Dr. Shahidi's running it, and I deliberately talk about him in the third person to emphasize that he's not running <laughs> I it. I better think he's really but, arrogant. Yes. <laughs> Dr. Shahidi's not here right now. Uh, yeah. But I've been guilty of that as well. Like I, you know, sometimes like this New York plastic surgeon was liked my photos. I'm like, oh my God, he's looking at me. But then I sort of think, oh my God, that's probably his it's practice. Shahidi that's love. me. That's the other yeah. But so I can see why people think that it's the doctor that's there. So they sort of send through all this information about themselves. And, and I'm just sort of like, we can't discuss this over social media. And what's more, we can't mm. discuss it not having assessed your case. I think... Um my two pennies worth is that people, you know, because it's so accessible, so instant, you know, th they can speak to someone like you in the practice. They assume that they can also get an instant answer, an instant price, an instant mm. judgment on whether they're suitable and so on. And yet you're like, I haven't even met you yet. Yeah. So <laughs> how could I possibly answer that? Yes. Let alone know you're suitable, your medical history, blah, 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 blah. So I think, you know, if patients don't understand that and that's understandable, they don't understand the process. That's so true. Yeah. Um, so you, I think I always often try and put myself in their shoes. You know, I'm not going to try and send back a, a disparaging, you know, a rude reply. I just want them to understand the process. Yeah. And so they can then take it more seriously and come in and, and actually have a proper consultation, do photos. And be examined. Probably. Exactly. Because as we keep emphasizing in all these podcasts, it's first and foremost, you're a professional doctor. And over social media, people forget that. They just see you, like you said, as the accessible person, not as that professional that has certain standards and ethics to adhere to and guidelines. So they, I had this one interesting situation recently where this girl sent a message and I wrote back with just standard costing kind of stuff and said, you know, for further information, please call the clinic. She then sent a barrage of messages that were quite like, at what stage is my deposit due? What if I think this? What if I think that? What if I think this? And I wrote back and I said, this again is partially my fault, which is something I've reflected on, is I wrote back please call our office for this type of info. And I put an exclamation mark. Mm. 
And if you've spoken to me before, my version of exclamation is sort of, hi, how are you? <laughs> you know, it's not necessarily yelling at someone. So I said, I sent that message in my normal tone mm. and I didn't think how that other person could have interpreted it. Yeah. She then wrote back, you know how on Instagram messages, you can only write a message so long. Yeah. And then she sent me three <laughs> messages of abuse as to why my exclamation mark was inappropriate. Mm. Wow. She then said why we were unprofessional compared to other clinics because other clinics were providing more information over DMs and didn't make them call the practice. And it just sort of went on and on like that. And I didn't respond because I thought, what can I say yeah. to this? It's almost like a new a new language. And Jake and I have even had some of these discussions around text Between messages ourselves. and emails. And I yeah. guess because I've been around. David's paranoid and yeah, I'm always just, mocking him. Yeah, <laughs> they probably are. Uh, you almost have to deconstruct what you've written and think how could this be misinterpreted as offensive yes or because when you remove tone when you learn communication and maybe you've covered this in some of your training when, mm-hmm. at uni or maybe not or maybe just picked it up over the years is that only a small percentage of what you actually say is relevant is relevant or what people absorb in terms of what people mostly pick up on is the way you say things your body language the tone mm. so when you remove all of that and you've only got words on a screen or on a page, every letter, every piece of grammar, punctuation can change the whole context or the way that a person will perceive that communication Mm. can be something that's quite benign in your eyes, could be like you've just slapped them in the face. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) And it's it's, it's like a new language. And I think there's also been a cultural social shift in the way that people communicate. People are more comfortable having text communications you only have yeah. to go down to your local cafe and look at people. They're not talking to each other. They're sitting across from each other, but they're talking on their phone. Yeah. People have lost almost the art of face-to-face communication. It's you know, And also it's the convenience of lying in bed at 11 o'clock scrolling through Dr. Shahidi's profile. So that's why you're so and, tired. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like, and, you know, and just firing off a message spontaneously, hoping to get that information, like the price. Yeah. But then by morning, you're sort of forgotten about it. Mm. You, you know, these people yeah. often don't come back and, and follow that That's through. Yeah. So it's just a strange way of communicating. It's almost if there was a way of having a nine till five DM. <laughs> But then that's nice. it. We'll open again at nine in the morning. If you've got yeah. any questions, DM us then. Yeah. I don't know. And yeah, mm. I think we need to do a podcast on social, social media. Social media, communication. exactly. Yeah. And I like it's your coming. point, David, on how even every email that you send, you think about, and we do that as a practice as well, because over the years we've been in situations where we've been abused or something's mm. been interpreted incorrectly. So often what we do in many emails is we read it out as a practice to each other before yeah. we send it, yeah. because even within our practice, we're all going to hear it differently. We're all going to interpret, you know, get a different meaning from it. So we sort of bounce it off each other before sending it to think, mm. In what way could this possibly go? Yeah. And again, we try to get everything off Instagram, in particular Facebook and email as quickly as we can, because it's easier if there is that miscommunication on the phone to deal with it there and then. Mm. And it, with the tone of your voice, people can understand it a little bit yeah. better. And it's a much better way of communicating sensitive things, which most mm. medical consultations and information are kind of sensitive. Or I think you almost have to assume that anything you put in writing will potentially either A, end up in in front of a lawyer in yeah. court or B, be reposted and plastered all over the internet. Yeah. That's almost what you've gotten to 
mm. have to get to a point where you go, where could this potentially end up? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and am I going to be comfortable if it ends up there? <laughs> yeah. One thing as well that I think social media brings out, and I'm a millennial, so I can say this, is entitlement. Yeah. <laughs> so we, like you said, we want everything when we can and at that time. And the problem with entitlement is that's not necessarily the best way to run a safe medical practice. Mm. So I've been abused before for <laughs> not giving people what they want mm. and then they sort of come at me with, well, you're giving me bad service. This is bad customer service. And I think, well, I'm not in the business of customer service. Yes, I am because that's the future of our practice is providing people with a good experience, but also above everything, we want to provide them with a safe medical medical experience and that you know for example someone like absurd situation someone wanted a surgery on a particular date and i said oh doctors overseas at that date you know the closest we can come up with is this and i just got told (laughs) you better flying back yeah exactly (laughs) what can i do and then so it's just sort of and then she then went on to the rant of how i wasn't giving her a good um customer service and then I said I'm trying to give you a safe medical experience first and Mm. foremost and that's something that I think patients need to remember is that even though they've chosen our clinic they've put a lot of research into our clinic and over time and in many cases over years so is that we also decision yes but also as practitioners and you'd find this as well is we they forget we have a choice too Mm. so they sometimes we'll, they'll tell us how it's done. And that's what I mean by that entitlement is they will tell us in what way it needs to be done, when their appointment needs to be and how it needs to go. And I sort of think, well, that's not how the best thing for, you know, from a yeah. medical I mean, perspective. One of the ways practice. I would approach that would be to say, that's great. I appreciate that you've done some research and you've heard how things may go, but just put some trust in us, you know, yeah. Dr. Shahidi's one of the best in the country at doing what he does. Just give him his time to his consultation and examine you, and then you can work together to decide what's best for you. Exactly. Rather than saying, uh-uh, we do it our way. Yeah, of course. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, in defense of millennials, I don't think it's a millennial thing. I think it's a generational thing that's progressively <laughs> getting worse, or maybe not worse. That's just how it is. If you look at how long people spend in jobs now, how long we spend in jobs like Jake and I compared to our parents and then our grandparents, people would be in jobs for 20, 30, 40 years. Yeah. Our society is moving so fast and it's almost every generation that goes past, things are moving at an exponential rate. So it's not just like a millennial thing, it's like a societal thing and it's it's a result of how fast-paced everything moves. Yeah. People want Everything instinct gratification yeah, because that's right. the way society is shaping us as a, as a species, I think. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And as a practice manager, what I've learned is that over time, and this is, was a hard thing to learn and hard thing to always do, is that when people want that instant gratification, and that's like you said, of all ages even, is that sometimes we need to step back and go, are we the right practice for you? Mm. Because in their mind, they've chosen Dr. Shahidi. You know, he's the guy that I want. Or in more generally speaking, they've chosen another doctor. And then what we have to look at is, are we the right practice for you? Yeah. And that's not something, and that's something that patients don't always understand is they, it's their decision. I've and given you some money, deliver. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we've had people before, like I said, telling us how to do things prior to surgery. And then we end up having a staff meeting and we think, is this best for us as a practice, can we help them? Mm. Because after you operate on someone, 
Dr. Shahidi said this to me years ago, and I never forget it because it's so relevant, is from the first consultation, it's like going on a date with someone. Mm. <laughs> they I did booked, a post on this recently. Oh, did you? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't see that one. Yeah. And then they, you know, you get married to them. And then once they have surgery, you've had a baby together. Yeah, <laughs> you right. can mine not... was a little bit Give birth to a beautiful <laughs> yeah. baby. Now. I went to yeah. first base, second base, fourth base. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's a good one too. <laughs> so once you have that baby, you know, you're stuck with that other parent for life. You can't just say to them, hey, we don't like how you do it. We want to do it this way. You have to manage the those expectations and manage it before surgery because after surgery there's swelling and there's a you know ugly month and if they if we don't have that relationship or have that ability to communicate with them how can we help them through the tough times yeah i think um the consultation and patients need to understand this it's where you're going to establish that bond of trust mm. you don't have to do a treatment on the same day you know you can go away and think about it but you're just developing that initial okay i can work with this guy yeah and he can deliver my nose or or not it's not so much that it's not a con it's not a contractual thing you're not going in and buying something mm. it's not like you go to shop and you say i have that it, it, it's more of a, a a process and a relationship exactly yeah it really and, is you know neither the doctor nor the patient has the power you both have to agree to go on a journey. Exactly. Yeah, very much so. So I guess putting my patient hat on for a moment and thinking like I want to get my um, my nose looked at. Mm -hmm. Definitely should. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so how do, what does that journey look like? So I I call up, I send you a, a DM on Instagram. I want to come in. You, we organize, come in for a consultation. How does that How does that process sort of take place in your practice? What, what should someone expect? Okay, so from the first phone call, we try to be as open and as honest as we can. So we tell them from the very beginning, these are the costs that you're looking at. This is the time frame you're looking at. Because So we try to manage the expectations from the beginning, mm -hmm. which some people don't like, but other people do. But we like to do it that way because we do prepayment for our appointments. So we do it that way because people are waiting for months before they come in. So if they've waited for months to come in and they think the surgery is going to be $5,000, then we already are on a bad foot with them yeah. from there. So before any money's taken or any appointments booked, we sort of tell them, look, realistically for what you're wanting, which we do ask them, what are you coming in for? What are you wanting to achieve? We then tell them the estimated costs for that and then the estimated time frame of when they could possibly have surgery down the line. So that's in the initial consultation. And something that our team also do and do very well is we can also deter people on that initial phone call too, because we have people that call up and say, oh, my nose isn't bad, it's fine. And then we just sort of say, okay, why are you coming in? You know, what Dr. Shahidi does is he does like a full reconstruction of your nose. It's, you're looking at at least this kind of cost. Whereas they'll say, oh no, mine's not that bad. My budget's this. And we sort of tell them honestly from then, hey, maybe, you know, I don't want you to so wait. So trying to bargain months. on the price, but yes. it's that bad. It's like you yes. can take your car to the panel beater. Ah, oh, it's just a scratch. <laughs> okay, there's no. Yeah. <laughs> Would in that instance you try and keep people in house and refer them to injector? Uh, Would that be an potentially? Yes, we do. It sort of depends how the phone call goes, mm. and but yes, we do suggest that in some cases, or perhaps to try that first before coming into our clinic because we don't do a lot of non-surgical nose stuff in our clinic. Sure. Um, so we do potentially suggest that before. 
Um, but yeah, so, so to answer the question, so initially it's just giving them as much information as we can, telling them about recovery, telling them about when in the year that they can do it. Because again, some people say, oh, I've just started a new job. I can't take leave for a year. Yeah, right. Then we think, oh, is now really the best time <laughs> to come yeah. in? Yeah. And then we've had, so, and in a way that's potentially bad for business, but it's also good because they then build trust with us and we'll come back in the future. So that's the first consult. That's the, sorry, the first phone call. Then they come in for the consultation and we've done a few different ways of doing this at the moment we're rolling with the patient sees Dr. Shahidi and they spend a fair bit of time with him doing medical history, um, discussing their concerns about their nose, him doing a physical assessment of it, of their nose internally and externally, taking photos and doing computer imaging, coming up with an idea of what they want their nose to look like, what they can achieve. So he's very thorough with that and spends a lot of time with patients. They then see the cosmetic consultant and she gives them a quote based on that assessment. And yeah, so pretty much they leave the consultation knowing if they, how much it's going to be, when they can do it. They may or may not have to be referred elsewhere to say a psychologist or to other specialists for medical checks, because again, first and foremost is the patient safety. So we have to manage the bigger picture before just jumping into surgery. We've also done consultations a different way, which we're sort of, we're always trialing different things where I will see them first, get to know them and why they're there sort of to build a bigger picture of with them, do a bit of a health history, and then they see Dr. Shahidi to do more specifically noses, and then they see the other lady for the quote. Both have pros and cons. Um, one is I also get to know them because I do all the aftercare mm. with them. So it's a big advantage for me and for the patient that we're comfortable with each other. Mm. And it does that did work really well in the clinic, but again, that's requiring more staff. So it sort of runs differently. The other advantage of doing it with just Dr. Shahidi is he gets to know the patient better as well. So it's probably better for him, but also as a practice, it does work really well to have for everyone to meet that person. Because as we said before, the, you know, it's a whole practice experience that people are coming in for. And on the note of that, I have, we had an incident a couple of years ago where this girl really liked Dr. Shahidi. She'd taken a dislike to me. And for a few What's reasons. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't understand. And, and she, when she called up to book her surgery and then she said, oh, but I just want to let you know, I won't be dealing with a practice manager through any stages of my appointments. It's all going to be with Dr. Shahidi. And then the other lady said, oh, well, does it really work like that? Yeah. You know, we sort of, and she's no, I don't want to deal with her. Just tell Dr. Shahidi, it's just him. So we then of course nice. had it, we said, well, we're not for you then. Because again, it's like, yeah. You know, you can have a beautiful leather bag, but if the zips don't work and the strap doesn't work, then it's not going to work as a whole. So we are a whole team. And that's the advantage of all of us getting to know the patient from the beginning is that we are all familiar with them and can all help them throughout the emotional recovery and the whole emotional journey in general. And again, it's a good illustration of people not really understanding the process. You know, Dr. Shahidi's not going to scrub out to come and do your quick review and exactly it's just not yeah (laughs) yeah so one of my favorite parts of my job so after they see the cosmetic consultant get their quote and that kind of thing if they then decide to proceed with surgery we generally organize that over the phone we have a pre-op consultation about six weeks before where they come back and finalize the imaging we tell them how to prepare how to look after themselves and all that we then have the surgery sometimes i'm there with dr shahidi sometimes i'm not then then i see them for one week later for their cast removal so that's generally a very the most emotional appointment of all. Yeah, unfailing. Be- yes, yeah. <laughs> and that's one of my favourite parts of what I do as well yeah. because so I remove the cast and the splints from inside their nose. I also sit down with them 
and go through what to expect over the next month because mm. that is the ugly month and the emotional month. And then ultimately the whole process sort of reiterating everything over the, the recovery period for the next year. I then see them at their one-month appointment and Dr Shahidi obviously comes in and sees them as well, but ultimately those appointments are a lot of teaching them how to look after their nose, which he doesn't really need to do. So I do that with them as well. And again, that's why important it's important that everyone can work, the patient can work with the whole team. And I like those appointments because that's, in many cases, the most exciting day for so many people. They see their new nose. <laughs> but it's really not their new nose yet, isn't it? No, that's it's right. It's only stage one, really. Yes. And that's an advantage of where the psychologist comes in right. is because a lot of people, as much as we can tell them, your nose is going to take a year to heal minimum. The yeah. first month is the ugly month. We as humans have that mentality that, oh, that won't happen to me. I'll be fine. <laughs> and particularly with social media, they yeah, can see I'm a lot of- I'm a fast of, healer. Yeah. yeah I've taken Arnica. It's all good. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I've never bruised um, before, so I won't bruise today. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. We get all of those things. Yeah. Surgery is a little different, isn't it? So we have, um, yeah. So working with a psychologist helps to manage that first month. Um, the ugly month. And also we prepare them within the practice too. But one of my go-to lines is in our practice, we're nose experts, well, particularly the doctor, we're nose experts, but we can't manage emotions yeah. and we can't pretend to know their life situation and how yeah. they're going to react to that. Mm. So the psychology perspective does help with that process. But um, I've had many teary post-op appointments yeah. and many really fabulous post-op appointments that are very exciting as well. Yeah. Um, I came up with a question. I don't know if this is relevant or not. How have you found either technology or software that helps you make yourself more efficient or organized within your clinic, whether it be your practice management system or your app that Dr. Mm -hmm. Shahidi uses or your social media? Like, what do you think is working and what do you think you still need to tweak to make things even better? Um, so we use a medical pra a software called Genie. When I first started in the clinic, I did all the genie training programs because it's an amazing software medical software in general has okay. it does everything for you it's a matter of knowing how to use it so when i first started within the clinic the lady that i took over from in the clinic was much older and she wasn't as tech savvy as what i was hmm. so i was able to just pretty much use the system to automate everything yeah <laughs> it just does it it, and they even, with online inquiries, they would manually type out every single inquiry. So we have templates for everything. We have checklists for everything. So I'm a bit, I love checklists. <laughs> They're the safest way to not miss anything. So I sort of use that within the practice and within Genie as well. It also has checklist systems to do everything. And also email templates for every point throughout the clinic. Um, for example, when someone books an appointment, we send them an email. When someone books surgery, we send them an email. So it has all the facts written out for them. Yeah. Um, that works really well for us. There are also other softwares available. For example, there's this one called Practice Hub, which is by Avant Insurance, associated with Avant Insurance in some way. And that's helps you with more registration and like legal, I guess, requirements mm. and standards. So it's sort of this database that you can put information in for all your doctors and all your nurses for when their registration expires, when machines need to be recalibrated. and That's things. really helpful, yeah. Yeah, so it just 
takes that pressure off me or the doctor to remember it because it's all automated. Yeah. And I like that, which also the problem with that is then sometimes I don't have things to do <laughs> because <laughs> the computer does it all. Yeah, right. Whilst wondering, what do you guys do when Dr. Shahidi's operating in a distant hospital? Are you having a party? Like, <laughs> does the champagne come out? Some days. <laughs> yeah. Some days it's like that. So for every patient that comes into the clinic, their Dr. Shahidi does a letter back to their GP. Um and we, like I said, we have emails for everything and we also send patients their images from their consultations. They then edit and send back. So there's a lot of community for every, you know, an hour of FaceTime with the patient and you have an hour or two of follow-up after the surge, after the uh, appointment. And what I find is when people come in to see doctors and you might have this as well, it can become almost an overwhelming experience. <laughs> they get excited to meet you. They get excited by everything and they forget so many things. Yeah. So the next day they call up and they have a list of questions of all these things they didn't ask, which generally we can answer over the phone. Yeah. So we're doing a lot of um, talking to patients, follow up from their consultations, booking new appointments, preparing Instagram posts, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, reviewing our website and doing those dictations and the letters back to each doctor. Yeah. Um, what else do we do? We also sort of, as a practice manager, I look f over the next few months of how are we going for surgery? Are all our lists full? Do I need to get extra lists mm -hmm. to accommodate extra people? You know, and being aware as a practice manager, you have to be aware of everyone, what's going on in the clinic at all times. Like if we have a day where 10 people really want to have surgery in May, but May is fully booked, perhaps it'd be a good idea to get extra lists in May yeah, right. <laughs> and do stuff like that. So how does Dr. Shahidi feel about that? Does he say, yeah, sure. Just sure. pack them in. Yeah. <laughs> Or does he have a life and this is family? This an ongoing and... battle. <laughs> yeah, right. So it's sort of, in, in many ways, it makes sense to do extra lists. But also, and this is something I say to patients, is he's a person who gets tired. Yes. You know, often patients say, but can't you just put an extra case on? It's like, you know, this doctor's been... You want him been... on his A-game. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I wouldn't that... want to be the last patient on a list. I want to be the first. Yeah, <laughs> yeah a lot of people Depends if that. he's had your coffee or not. Yeah. There's different theories. People want him fresh and then other people want him when he's warmed up. Right. So, okay. It's like yeah. a tennis match. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he, and uh, look, December, January is the perfect example of where yeah. everyone wants surgery. Yeah. And if I had it my way, I'd have him operating every day. But also as working in the hospital with him, I do see how exhausting that is. And yeah. it's just almost They're physically not possible. Yeah. yeah. And very tedious too, like mm. millimeters that you're working with. Um, so we do pounce on the opportunity to do more surgeries when we can. But at the same time, again, we have to look at, is this the best interest mm. of the patient to be doing five days Shahid. straight? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> not burnt out. Just getting back to that software that gives you the, uh, the image of what the nose would potentially yeah. look like. I, I could assume that that could be quite, um, you have to be careful with that too, because that's then an image, no matter what you say, oh, this is just a, you know, this is 80% accurate or 90% accurate. Mm -hmm. You might have someone that then just, that becomes the image that they fixate on. This is how my nose yes. has got to look. Mm -hmm. And it could potentially come back to bite you uh, if the nose doesn't turn out like that or if yeah. something goes wrong during recovery or yeah, it's only, it's only a, a guide really. Is that an issue for you? It has been in the right. past, but also that's something we are very well aware of. So we try to avoid that in the beginning by giving a picture that maybe underestimates <clears throat> right. to then hopefully over-deliver, but also... Dr. Shahidi likes to do the, because he's doing the picture. He generally, after he's done his assessment, he kind of knows what's achievable. Mm. So people often say, I wanted a little bit small. He say, well, can I aim? I can aim for that, but I can't 
necessarily I don't want to give you a picture of that picture because then they can use it yeah. later so we do try to manage that before surgery people do use it after surgery to say I want this which generally we don't mind because that's again the final result a year a year and a half away yep. not one month post surgery so it's usually not an issue because we sort of had that to say well look it's coming down the line yep. but a lot of people really want front-on imaging yeah. which we don't do because that to do front-on imaging, you need to manage or alter the depth of the photo, right. which whereas if on a 2D photo, when we do it, we're just essentially moving shadows, which yeah. isn't, we've years ago given people an image like that and it, again, didn't mm. work so well yeah, because right. it wasn't necessarily, so we just tend not to do So that. you just do profile and 45 degrees. Yeah. In some cases, if they have a really wide nose, we will do uh, doctor will do one for right. them but it's that's quite a exceptional circumstance where right. we, we would do that but also interesting that you mentioned that because the way that everything's going now is 3d yeah right and i i'm not sure who but i think some doctors are doing it at the moment and dr shahidi and i just went to a conference over in dallas and there was a massive focus on 3d imaging mm. and using that within the practice and he and I were like wrapped up in it. Well, this is so cool. There are so many things you can do, particularly to a few years ago when we first looked at it. The technology has really come a long way. And we just sort of like, again, we were getting excited. And we're like, oh, let's get the rep to come and see us when we're back yeah. home. And then we thought about it and we just sort of looked at each other and we went, the hang on. sometimes outweigh the uh -huh. sort of the coolness. Yeah, exactly. Because we thought, hang on a second, then we're giving someone a picture from every angle. And we go, okay, if we've they've got that, then their profile can be exactly what they want. The front view can be what they want, but that extra angle might not be what they want. And then we're opening ourselves yeah, up. Especially with the selfie world. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to take a photo of myself from this angle in this lighting at this yeah. time of the day when the sun's in this portion of the sky. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't quite look like that. I've seen this really cool uh, device. I don't know if it's similar to one that you've seen. Basically, the client sits in a chair and it will automatically spin them at the same speed. And you can actually use your iPhone, not even special photography, yes, to take the, the video, let alone the photos. And so your before and afters would be a perfect, you know, spin on a chair of the, at the same time. Yeah. It's quite cool. Yeah, it is. But like you said, suddenly the scrutiny becomes tenfold rather yeah. than just that one-off shot. Exactly. So I don't and know. And we already struggle with that because... Yeah. Someone's like, providing more ammunition, which yes. is what you want. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And then, um, you know, patients sort of say, oh, why aren't you keeping up? Other doctors do it. And I'm like, oh, we just yeah. don't think well, we you, can manage it. You sound it. like you're busy enough. Yeah. What's the wait time to see Dr. Shahidi at the moment for anyone uh, out there wanting about surgery? About three months. Three months? Three months. For a consult or for surgery? For consult, yeah. And then surgery? Surgery two to three months after that. It's not too bad. Yeah. So <laughs> it's sort of a six-month turnaround time, which I think is also a good thing too because it gives them time to think yeah, about it. Yeah, absolutely. It's not just an overnight decision, which is something I think you were you guys were talking about in one of your podcasts mm. the other day, is that sometimes treating the patient at that time is not best for no, them or yeah. best for you. Mm. We all need to think about it. And again, back to the earlier example of can we all work together yeah. <laughs> for the next year in getting to know each other over slowly over the first few months is in many ways. We like that. It's yeah. a good thing. Um, you mentioned earlier about the importance of good staff. Yeah. Do you have any examples where it hadn't worked out or, or what was the actual clash? Was it just personality or was it a skill set? That yeah. Um, so a couple of years ago, so we've had quite a, like I said, now we're really lucky. We've got a really good team, but it did take a while to get there. So we had people that worked in our clinic that weren't necessarily a good fit. What it took me a while to learn is 
that hiring the right person is more valuable than the person with the right experience. Mm, yeah. So one of the ladies that works with us, that's been with us for about four or five years now, she initially, I was, so I think I mentioned earlier, I was working closely with the practice manager consultant mm. who taught me a lot about hiring and that kind of stuff. And we looked at this lady's resume who works with us and she's like, oh, she has no reception experience. But I looked at her resume and she had car sales experience and mm. she had owned a shoe shop for years. So I thought that tells me she's good with people and knows how to communicate with mm. people. And so we ended up, and also we did her daughter's nose. So I'd spoken with her before and I really liked her. Mm. And so I had an, did an interview with her and like she's been fa fabulous for us because she's really good with people. So when people first call the clinic with their um, you know, concerns or a phone call they've thought a long time about making, she's amazing with them because yeah. she really makes them feel comfortable and she's been fantastic. So back to, so what I'm trying to say is with her is she was the right person mm. and we have then taught her obviously, you know, Skills. the software yeah. and that kind of stuff. So in the beginning we'd hired people with, you know, working GP practices or other practices, but they sort of weren't as good as at communicating with mm the people over the phone because they were used to people calling up saying, I'm sick, I've got tonsillitis, I need an appointment. They tell them the time they're there. There's none of that bigger relationship building on that phone call. So we had people come in that had all the perfect experience, knew how to use the software. Them fitting in technically was a dream, but they were getting people annoyed on the phone. <laughs> yeah. And then sort of, I would have to sit down with them and just sort of say, you know, we have to, you know, these people are emotional when they call. In some cases, they've thought about that phone call for 20 years <laughs> and they finally pick it up. And then to be abrupt with them, it's not going to, yeah. they're not going to feel comfortable and they, they will go somewhere else. And hence they don't want to deal with the staff. They would just want to see Dr. Shahidi. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So in the beginning, we did have a few experiences like that or where people were getting <clears> in arguments over the phone and you just sort of, we then, they, hey, they're not the right fit for us. So I have been in that situation but now, and also that's something I've learned as a practice manager is in the beginning, I was really babying new staff, teaching them everything that they needed to know and showing them everything and sitting with them and that kind of thing. But what that taught me is then when I, a few months later, when I would back off from them is they would just fall because they didn't, that did those skills didn't come to them. Yeah almost naturally, or they didn't have common sense to deal with what we were dealing with. So what I do now is when we hire new staff, I just sort of let them talk on the phone, like give them really basic, say, pricing information on how to make an appointment and just let them sink or swim. And it's a bit of a cold way of doing it, but it just shows you who fits in, yeah. you know, who's good with the patients and they make it on their own. If they're the right fit, they'll, or can communicate, they will. Well, you can teach skill but you can't teach personality mm. and you can't teach work ethic or common sense. How does that different or differ, should I say, from uh, creating a culture within the clinic? For example, um, just having that camaraderie and supporting each other and having each other's back. Can you? Do you think you can train that or is that just, a again, a personality clash if it doesn't work out? A bit of both. Um, we have had situations before where people initially we just weren't sure if they would be right. And then it turns out really well because they sort of pick up on what or they were shy in the beginning okay. and then don't know how to fit in or whatever. And then it all sort of comes good in the end. But in the beginning, look, it takes three months at least before you see if they do fit in or if they don't. More than fitting in, it's 
even if they're not palsy with us and, you know, we wouldn't be friends outside of work, it's still if they, like you said, they create, um, have the right culture, so to speak, for the image that we're portraying. Yes. And like I said before, our one thing that we really like, particularly on the phones, is just to be super honest, just tell everyone everything up front. Yeah. And in some cases, we'd have people call up, like I said, and say, my nose isn't that bad. And it's a bit of an art to say to them, you know, are you sure you want to come in? Is it right for you? And if you say that wrong, that can go real bad real quick. It's easier to say, sure. Yeah. <laughs> when do you want? Yeah, exactly. And we've had a lady before who was just a bit abrupt and she said, well, what are you coming in for? And obviously <laughs> that went really terribly very mm. fast and she didn't fit in because our approach is just more to sit back be honest with them and let them make a decision based on the information that we've given to them. Yeah. And in some cases with her, she had that abrupt, almost so you're off not approach. trying to be the gatekeeper. No, no. And patients sometimes see it that way. Which it's, I think a lot of GP yes. receptionists are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And because they have to keep the masses away and bring the appropriate exactly. people Exactly. And I struggle with that as well. Sometimes if I call a GP for something for a patient is I'm the enemy. And I'm like, hey, we're on the same side here. We're working yeah. together. But usually that's pretty rare that we get that gay kip, that people say that about us. Yeah. Um, but I have been in situations with other staff members where it did feel that way. Yeah. And then you just sort of look at it and go, they're not right. They're not going to bring us money for starters if they're turning people away, but also they're not making people feel comfortable. Yeah. David, you've got some insight. So you've taken over clinics where they were struggling or, yeah. you know, doing pretty badly. How, how, it's, well, how do you turn it around? Well, I think if, so I'll use this analogy if the fish rots from the head down. So <laughs> that's a bit crude, but I mean, if you've got poor leadership, then you'll have poor staff. Yeah. So it's about making sure that you as a leader or the person that's owning or overseeing that business um, is passionate, understands the business, um, you've got a strong work ethic, and then surrounding yourself with with good people that can work together yeah. and creating that positive culture and leading from the front. Mm. If you don't care or you've got a bad attitude, then how can you expect your staff or the people that are working in your business to have a good attitude? So it's a, it's not a – there's no silver bullet to running a successful practice or a successful business these days. It's a multifaceted. You've got to have great marketing. You've got to have a great team. You, your place has to look on point. The way people communicate have to be on point. Everything has to be right. People, you're under scrutiny mm. from so many different angles these days. And if you don't have a, if you're not, if you don't have every base covered, it's very difficult to be successful, I think. Yeah. And I, I couldn't agree with you more in terms of making sure that you've got the right personalities, that that team dynamic works together. It's like a sports team. Yeah. You know, not, you know, like Dr. Shahid, for example, might be um, the forward or the striker that's scoring the goals. But without that person passing him the ball or defending someone scoring yeah. on you, it can yeah. go really badly. So you've got to have people that play different parts in the team and they work together in a cohesive unit. It's like a machine. Yeah. yeah. One part's broken, it falls apart. Mm -hmm. So I think that's what it is. It's just, and I think rather than focusing on having a monetarily successful business, just focus on having a successful business and the money and the success comes as a byproduct of having a good practice yeah. and having good people. And that's if you focus so on that, for me, that seems to seems to have worked quite well. Mm. But I guess following on from from Jake's point or Jake's question is that this is a really interesting industry because we're at, you're in, in an area or we're in an area of, of medicine that's not therapeutic. People aren't coming to you because they have to. They're coming to you because they want to. Yes. And with that comes the financial pressures, especially for new surgeons, um, where they've got the financial strain or the, you know, they've come from all this training, they've got to try and run a successful practice. And then also we've got pressures from people like APRA and the medical board, putting regulations and restrictions, what you can, can't say, advertising. How do you combat that? Like, I guess, balance 
promoting or trying to run a successful financial practice and then being medically responsible and adhering to all of the rules and regulations that seem yeah. to be changing almost daily. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, it's a daily struggle yeah. is how I was going to start that. And Sorry, that's a long question. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> so it is something we just try to, and again, this is Dr. Shahidi's approach, he's low risk, yeah. um, he does everything thoroughly and we just sort of try to manage everything before it happens. And we do that with... Our, everything as well is we just try to we read the APRA guidelines and sort of think, let's just not take the risk. Because some in some cases there are guidelines, yeah, rules, and we, right. yeah, and we just think, yeah. which regulators <laughs> interpreting it at the time. Exactly. Yeah. Let's just err on the side of caution mm. and not to do something like that. So there's one that we was a shame for us, but also probably a good thing is that testimonials. So we and the APRA guidelines, we're not allowed to be associated with testimonials. We're not allowed to put them on our website and and or not on our social media either. And we do see that a lot. All, all the time. And that's because there's that gray area of, is it the patient journey? Yeah, what's the difference? I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure either. <laughs> and the wording of it. So I get, um, you know, emails and notifications all the time from APRA and our insurance saying, you know, you have to word things this way. You can't word it this way because that can be interpreted to mean something. Mm. And this, when I say daily struggle is particularly with social media is all the time I get messages from people saying, oh, can you send us links to um, YouTube videos of people's experience? And I was like, well, no, I can't because as much as I'd want to, am I then associated with yeah. it if I send it across? And even people saying, oh, it's the best experience of my life. It's changed my life. Uh, we probably can't say that. Yeah. And um, so that is hard that we can't advertise ourselves in many mm. ways. And also patient confidentiality. So as well as the APRA guidelines, patient confidentiality is another really, really big one that, again, I get DMs all the time saying, oh, I really want to see more bulbous noses. And I, that's the most common one. Like, mm. I'd love to show you more bulbous noses, but about 95% of patients of don't let us use their photos. Yeah. And the ones that do often don't want their front-on photos shown. Yeah. And the social media demographic don't think of that. They don't see that we're not allowed to do those certain things. And also it's the people that want to see these photos are the people who will definitely say, I don't want my photo on. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you're so right. That happens all the time. <laughs> uh, so you're sort of between a rock and a hard place. You want to advertise what you do, mm. but you can't do it. Yeah. Yeah. So... Another interesting one for in terms of guidelines is there's this clause in the guidelines that say pretty much to have a rhinoplasty done or a cosmetic procedure, you must be, well, again, I'm not really sure of the wording, so I can't quote on this, but you must be 18. And if not, you have to have psychological review and other medical review. So we interpret that to mean, let's be 18, yeah. <laughs> we'll stop. But then there are different practices that all do it differently. And in, there are some cases where someone just can't breathe through their nose. They've just finished school. Yeah. They're starting uni like a month after they're 18. Is it in that patient's best interest to do it a month before their 18th birthday? Possibly it is, or we wait. So there are things like that that are, like you said, open to interpretation, what's right, what's wrong. Yeah. And we just sort of, again, try to be – and. Again, that makes people unhappy, but we do try to just be more cautious because is it a guideline or is it a rule? <laughs> yeah. Well, Dr. Sheedy was talking about um, kids that have, say, ears that stick out a lot Yeah. when they're very young. Mm -hmm. And if you don't deal with that, like they've actually, this is not, objectively, they have an issue with their ears. Mm. It's not a, it's not them imagining it or a body dysmorphia issue. But if you don't deal with it, it could become that. So, yeah. you know, that could be quite a, a, a difficult one to sort of navigate. Yeah. It's when those patients 
want to get them fixed before they get bullied and start becoming emotionally traumatised from it. Yeah, very true. And I think Dr Shahidi mentioned that as well, is with the kids also we just want to make sure that the child understands it, you know, yeah. and they're happy to proceed in that case and yeah. then it's a really good thing to do. And what the one that we find with our big group of our patients have just finished their HSC and it's the best time for them, not for everyone, but for a lot of people to do it before they start uni or in the other big group is when people finish uni before they start work. It's the next chapter in their life. Yeah. 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 So what we do is we sort of work, we work closely with the psychologist to say, hey, is it, are we better off doing this person's surgery in January rather than waiting until July? Um, like April, if uni starts in March, like are we better to do it now for that person or should we wait till they're 18? In some cases we wait till they're 18, but we have to look at, you know, like you said, what's best for that person in terms of bullying and their overall picture and then we sort of have to get look at their breathing issues from a medical perspective and also look at psychological and work out the best thing for them. Yeah. Um, before we got you on the podcast, we obviously sort of established a bit of a background. You said that you went to America with uh, Dr. Shahidi yeah. to a conference. Mm -hmm. And I think you were struck by how open the advertising yes. and yeah. how sort of in your face plastic surgery uh, treatments can be, yep. you know, for prospective clients. Yeah. And that sort of goes back to what you were saying about the APRA is the thing that... Like you can sort of understand that the... the the rationale for what we do in Australia. Yeah, exactly. Well, it made also, me because you have to see the flip side. Well, then also yeah. you've got the patients that, you know, a patient on Instagram looking at Dr. So-and-so's work, they would just assume the same rules apply here. So they go, oh, I'm looking at all these amazing before and afters mm. um, and the freedom in which doctors overseas can advertise. But someone sitting here in Bondi or whatever looks at their phone, they're just looking at it like they're around the corner. So they would expect that the same thing could be done here. Yeah, definitely. And with America, the thing that was amazing <laughs> to me, I just sort of, I can't get over it is so I, I went with Dr. Shahidi and he was, I went to some surgical things with him and he focused on that, but they also have this other part of the conference, which is for assistance for plastic surgeons. So I went along to that and it was almost like a, a culture shock, <laughs> dare I say, because their mentality to plastic surgery was completely different to how sell, we sell, perceived sell. it. Yeah. <laughs> it was just, so they were talking about all the different ways to get the person to book when they might not be ready. And I'm oh going, in Australia, we just don't do this. Like all the doctors here, it's a very much hands-off approach. Like you go away, you think about it and then come back to ask questions. Whereas over there, it's book on the spot, pay in non-refundable deposit on the spot. But the thing that really struck me was with testimonials. So they were coming up, you know, it's one of those conferences where we all just throw around ideas and best practice stuff. And what a lot of them were saying is to have a spare room after the consult process where the patient goes into that room and you have an iPad set up with different templates of what they can use to write a review. Oh, and wow. they were saying, we recommend having either the nurse or one of the admin staff there with them to coach them on what to write. Oh my God. And what you need to write is, you know, about your overall experience, about how it changed your life, about it. And I was thinking, what? <laughs> like, not only are we not allowed to be associated with it, they're, they were teaching us how to coach people wow. into what to write. And... Hmm. I, I mean, just thought that was really... You know, we've touched on this many times in the podcast and various things, you know, the cosmetic world, we're offering a service, but ultimately we're doctors or nurses yeah. first. Mm. And I think we just have to remember that hat is on and it's bigger than the money, the business. 
because you're just going to get bitten on the ass if, if people come back and say, look, you coerced me into this. Exactly. And I'm not yeah. happy and I've had a permanent change to my face. Mm. It's kind of pretty tricky after that, yeah. isn't it? And we all know people don't feel comfortable if they have had a potentially bad experience. They're not going to feel comfortable to write about it there. They're not going to yeah. be honest. Yeah. Mm. And sometimes something that I've learned over the years is with reviews and things online is we've almost become proud of our negative reviews mm. because they some people write that they were refused surgery like our negative reviews are generally that, that we didn't take them on and they're not gonna and i sort of read that and i think well i'd rather it's a badge of honor to yeah, say we've waited we, exactly. our entry point yeah whereas i've read reviews and not just from you know in general where the doctor didn't want to touch me and they're unhappy about it which is a bad thing but also i think well i'd rather that than a review that we did something mm. terrible with the surgery and that's the advantage of the patient not being with you when they write the review mm. is they can genuinely write their experience. And sometimes negative things help people to prepare for what they may get when they come in to see us like being taught, refused surgery or recommended somewhere else or given a different treatment plan that might take longer than say that person. Yeah. So for prospective young nurses who are finding their way, what advice maybe could you give them? Because like we said before, a lot of nurses would assume, okay, I've got to be on a ward or I've got to be in theatre and they, they just can't see past that. How would you... Or in, become an injector. Yeah. Or an injector, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I think the most important thing that I want to emphasise to people is meet people along the way. Because even in my nursing hospitals in when I was in the hospitals on placements and things I met a lot of people that gave me different tips and also got to know me and recommended different things to me for example this um at the hospital the one of the head nurses there sort of noticed me and we got talking and then she ended up taking me aside and saying you know you can work in management in a hospital this is how you can get to it and she sort of gave me a whole side of um, how I can use nursing in a hospital, which I know we did discuss with Dr. Tahiti before, but, um, and if I didn't meet her, I wouldn't have known that that was an option. Yeah. So I think it's really easy to, in nursing, particularly when you're younger, is to look at all that nursing is, is caring for people, but it's gives you a lot of other skills as well, um, on that you can use in other industries. Like we said with Penny being a, um, a rep or a pharmaceutical company. So I think it's being open You with nursing, it's open to different things and to trying different industries because as I would have thought I'd hate working in a hospital, but I loved surgery. Absolutely loved it. And mm -hmm. I sort of thought this is something else I could do if I didn't work where I was, yeah. which me before that would never have thought that. So it's, yeah, like you said, it's just sort of getting to know all the different areas and you might not have realized till later. So, and also, so aligning yourself with good people that you notice. Where I got a lot out of my nursing is I would see a good nurse and I would follow her. <laughs> I would work with her because it's really easy to think I was placement, I'm unpaid for what I'm doing here. But you learn a lot more from the good nurses. Yeah. And a thing we have in nursing and that I, and you'd ha you would have spoken about it a lot when you were studying as well is reflective practice. And that's something as a practice manager we do. So practice manager and nurse for me, a big thing of my daily work is reflecting on what we've done so that's reflecting on the good and being proud of it and learning from it you can always you can always improve from that and also reflecting on the bad and for example when like the exclamation point when the yeah. girl told me that i learned something from that so we've got to look at our negative feedback and our positive feedback and learn from it yeah in all different environments we tend to learn more from our failures than our successes yeah true mm. wise words of wisdom yeah <laughs> um so 
If anyone would like to get in touch with either yourself or the practice, how, how could they get connected to you guys? Um, my sort of first response to that would be say, slide into the DMs. <laughs> <laughs> Without an explanation mark. Yeah. No emojis. <laughs> yeah. but as I also don't like to. So um, generally calling the clinic and chat to me there. Otherwise, sending me an email is really good too. So my email is admin at drshahidi.com. And I have had girls before write to me just about practice management and the different options because I was lucky in that I got into that from the practice manager consultant who helped me, but I've had lots of other girls write to me. And even if they didn't want to work in a cosmetic practice, they're like, where do I begin? What do I do? What do you need to get there? Yes. And I, I enjoy talking about that. <laughs> so I'd sort of be That's why I've invited you. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. So if anyone wanted to talk about that, I'd be more than happy to share my experience and not necessarily the way I did it, but things that I saw along the way of other ways of doing it as well. Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Rayleigh. Oh, thanks for thank having you. me. It's thank been fun. <laughs> enjoy the rest of your day yeah, and um, we'll see you soon. All right. Bye. 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 Bye.